Well, welcome here, friends. My name is Brad, and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team. And I thank you for grabbing your beverages and come on back and taking your seats. And I want to start off by saying that there are things that they do not tell you when you first step into the whitewater raft on the shore of the river where the water is calm and the banter in the boat is still easy and light. Now, they have definitely covered off these things in the safety briefing on the shore. And they tell you things that could or might happen to you as a whitewater rafter. But I treat these a little bit like the in-flight safety announcement on the plane, like many of you might do. Yes, yes, Transport Canada says you have to say these things, but I won't actually probably remember any of them in the case of a real emergency. So we nod and we smile and you get into the raft under the leadership of what you hope is a certified guide, and you enter the stream and the river begins to do its work. And how many of you have ever been whitewater rafting? Okay, so some of you have been. So you know that the, the, it starts nice and peacefully, right? And then as the river does its work, you go from, at the beginning, you're paddling to actually make the boat move, to try and get a little bit more speed as you go through the slow part of the river. And then eventually, you're paddling for dear life to help the boat stay upright. And then you hit the rapids. And I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I'm not a whitewater rafting expert in any way. I've only done it once in my life. But if they told me they might face, we might face this, or even this, <laughs> I might have opted to stay on the shore. Um, we rafted on the Ottawa River one summer as a family, and when we were growing up, they didn't tell us, or I was too young and invincible to ask, why all of the signage everywhere said, welcome to the flip trip. <laughs> and I found out personally because small 14-foot rafts allow you to dip into class three, four, and five rapids. Class six is the highest anywhere in the world. And in the words of the rafting company's website, you are guaranteed to feel and experience every single wave and ripple on the Ottawa River. And we did. <laughs> At one point in the trip, I remember being thrown out of the boat. And I spent a quick minute thinking to myself, there was a safety demonstration that said what to do. Was I supposed to go like this? Was I supposed to go like this and try and stable my, stabilize myself? I couldn't remember. But what I learned about whitewater rafting that summer is that it is important to work with and not against the power of the current. See, when you fall out of the boat, when you get swept up in that current, your individual actions, while important, are minor in comparison to the influence that the river has on you at that moment. When you step into the current, you're choosing to be carried somewhere. And you can choose to go along for the ride or you can protest and try and resist. But once you have chosen to submit to the current and to participate in the current, then you will be carried down the stream. And that's why I think often in the Bible, 
when the scripture talks about the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a current of water, a powerful eternal current of water might be a helpful image to think about the work and ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because the Bible uses a lot of word pictures to try and help us understand how the third person of the Trinity works. God as Father, God as Son, God as Holy Spirit. But the one that's often repeated is a connection of the Holy Spirit to water. For example, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet says, I will pour out water to quench your thirst and irrigate your parched parched fields, and I will pour out, often the language is a pouring, water language, my spirit on your descendants. I will pour out my blessing on your children. And then fast forwarding to the New Testament in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out. Again, the image and one of the hallmarks of the Spirit's work is that the Spirit begins to break down barriers. And barriers that were present in the life of the early church were present in the church in Galatia which is to whom the book of Galatians has been written. And the book of Galatians we've been studying this fall here at Jericho. And Galatians, I think, helps us understand one of the most profound divides that was emerging in the first century Christian movement. It was a divide between those who were Jewish and had grown up with a Jewish background and Jewish history and those who had grown up as non-Jews. And we read in the book of Galatians that there were false teachers coming in to the church in Galatia and they were saying, "Mm, unless you practice all of the laws written in the Old Testament, the Torah, that you're not welcome in God's family. But Paul writes a letter to the Christians in the city of Galatia to try and help correct their thinking about this. And he writes uh, to another church that's struggling with some unity issues. And this is the way that he puts it in 1 Corinthians 10. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some of us are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we were all given one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to drink. Again, the language of water used to describe the Spirit of God. And in many ways, the book of Galatians is a book about church unity, how to contend for it, how to mess it up, how to get it back on track. And in places like Ephesians, Paul said that unity comes as a result of the Spirit and the work of God's Spirit. And so in our study so far in the book of Galatians this fall, we've seen the work of the Spirit come up numerous times. Paul says in Galatians that the Christian life begins by believing into and receiving the Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, gives them new life, draws them into a saving relationship with God, and guides us into all truth. And Paul says in Galatians, you received the Spirit because you believed the message about Jesus and about Christ. See, when we trust Christ for salvation, the Spirit washes us clean. The Spirit comes to reside in our lives, not as an impersonal force, but in a relational way. And then Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that 
because God has sent God's spirit into our hearts, it allows us to experience and know our identity as the children of God. The indwelling Holy Spirit testifies or bears witness to and with us that you are a beloved child of God. The Spirit allows you, Paul says, to pray, to even cry out to God. The Spirit distributes gifts to each person for ministry in God's family. The Spirit empowers people for bold witness in the world. And now Paul comes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, to some of the clearest and most helpful teaching on the Spirit in his writings. And if you have your Bibles or devices, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And Paul's invitation here is to get caught up in the eternal current and the movement and work that the Spirit is doing. Let's start reading in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It'll be up on the screen behind me. So, I say, live, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't do what your sinful nature craves. Your sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. See, Paul, one of the things that I appreciate about Paul's writings in the New Testament is that he's very honest. He's honest about his own personal struggles. He's honest about what's going on in his own life and development as a follower of Jesus. And part of his honesty here is just to say that the struggle is real. That inner struggle is part of the Christian life experience on this side of eternity. Until you and I experience heaven, we're going to experience a wrestle, an inner wrestling in our lives between our sinful nature and the life that the Spirit invites you and I into. And it doesn't help to pretend that it isn't real. It doesn't help to uh, just constantly put up a front so that people don't think you're struggling in any way and that people don't get to know the real struggles that you are facing as a person. One of our values here at Jericho is uh, authentic community. And sometimes when people use the word authentic, what they mean is kind of a warmth and a fuzziness to the, the relational temperature in the room is authentic. It's, it's warm, it's personable. But what we mean when we use the word authentic certainly includes that, but it transcends that. It really means something more like vulnerability, something a little bit more raw, where you're willing to not just pretend, but to be honest with the struggles that are going on in your life. Sometimes I meet people and I talk to them and we're pressing into areas in their life and they say, well, I don't I'm not really ready to admit that I'm struggling or they're afraid to admit what they're struggling with. And part of that thinking, I wonder if it comes from places in our culture that say if you admit weakness or admit that you're struggling, 
that vulnerability could be used against you in some way. And so we're often afraid to go there with each other, to really let other people into those places in our lives where we really are wrestling at that deep level. And it is a challenging thing to try and find that, to try and work at that. You know, and not every setting is appropriate and healthy for that. But if you are pressing into those relationships that are spiritually healthy and where people are walking with you along that journey, admitting that there is a struggle is not a sin. Struggling and being tempted is not a sin. It's just a sign that you're a human being and that you're not dead yet. And the language that Paul uses here is almost a language of currents, of two strong and opposing currents that are pulling you and pulling each of us in different directions and with different levels of intensity. They're both going to take you somewhere, as we'll see. And the two currents are life in the spirit and life according to or in the flesh. Now, the word flesh gets used a lot in the New Testament. It means different things in different places. And in this setting, what Paul is saying about the flesh is he's not talking about just a bodily expression of who we are. He's talking about a part of our human nature that causes us to want to put our selfish needs ahead of everything and everyone else. It's the part of us that actually wants to do evil. It's the part that opposes the good things that God wants in the world and in our lives. And this is why Paul links his discussion back into the conversation we've been having about the law. He says the law has its purpose. It can define and identify sin, but it cannot give you that which you need. It can't give you the power to actually resist sin. Nor does the law instill within you concerns, desires, and character of God. So how do you get there? How do you actually follow and keep in step with the Spirit? Because believers, if you're a person of faith and you say, I name myself as a part of Jesus' family, then you've not been left on your own to try and sort that out. The Spirit of God has been given to you to empower you for the kind of life that God invites you to lead. But then the question is, well, how does this actually happen? How does the Spirit actually guide us? Paul says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. All right, Paul, thank you. How is that supposed to happen? And there's three kinds of guidance that he lays out for us as we go through the rest of chapter 5. The first one he says right up front. It's a protective kind of guidance. It's a strength to take a stand against evil and against temptation. Speaking again to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says to them, the temptations in your life, the temptations that I face, the temptations that you face, are no different than what other people experience. And God is faithful. God will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, God will show you a way out so that you can endure. The holy, part of the Holy Spirit's guidance and work in our lives is to empower and strengthen us to resist temptation. 
to resist evil and the evil one. Because we can say, oh, the struggle is real, but we also can say that you are not under an obligation to follow or give in to sin, just like you and I are not under the obligation to follow or give in to or be directed by the current that was the law of Moses. Paul says, when you are tempted, the Holy Spirit has been given to you so that you can resist that temptation. When you're tempted, there's a way out. When you feel that click, that urge to click on that porn site, yet again, when you feel that lie or that juicy piece of gossip just welling up inside of you, and like, oh, I really want to share this with somebody to burst out of you. When you feel like anger is going to burst out of you in an unhealthy and unproductive way, you can resist temptation. It is not reasonable and healthy for you to say, well, I'm just weak-willed, I can't beat it. It's too strong. There are, the Spirit of God has been given to you to take a stand against temptation and to source out a way out. But this does not happen on your own willpower, just by trying harder and just, oh, I, I was beaten again by that particular sin or temptation. It happens when you submit to the guidance of the Spirit because Paul says, when you are submitting to the guidance of the Spirit, then you will not be doing what the sinful nature wants. And so the second way that the Spirit guides us that we see in these verses is it's an active, attentive, obedience-oriented guidance. Because when we submit to the Spirit, the Spirit gives us things. And one of the things that the Spirit gives us is desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. When you are directed by the Spirit, you're gonna receive direction and guidance, Paul says, from the Spirit. Not just to resist evil, but actively to know what to do and what to say in given situations. This week we've been uh, collecting prayer items and prayer requests from all of our supported mission workers. And what was fascinating to me to read was in every single one of them, they said, pray that we will know what the Spirit wants us to do. Pray that the Spirit will guide us. God will guide us in this coming year to know what it is that we need to do and to say. See, God is always communicating with us. God is an active, communicating God. And the Spirit empowers us to listen to that which God is speaking and to discern and to know what we should do. But this requires us to take certain practices and postures in our lives. And so a question that I often ask myself is, does my life look like that of a person who wants to hear what God is saying? Does my life look like I actually want to listen? Think about it in the realm of parenting. If you as a parent are trying to communicate something to your children, there are certain activities that might be running at cross purposes with that. For example, them being on their phones all of the time and you speaking and trying to communicate something to them. I'm sure that never happens to you. But there's a miscue there. 
That person's life doesn't look like they want to pay attention to what's being said. And Paul's saying the same thing here. The Spirit is going to help you pay attention to what God is saying and give you active guidance, but your life has to look like a person who wants to hear. This requires becoming a little bit more reflective. It requires creating some time in your calendar. And for me, the way that I practice this is when I get up each morning, my discipline is that I'm not going to touch my phone until I've just spent time in quiet reflection with God. And so I put the phone physically in another room that I would have to walk through the living room to get to. And so I pause in the living room, I go get a coffee first and foremost, coffee first, and then I go and sit and say, okay, God, let's go over the day today. Let's go over the day yesterday. What happened? Were there any things that I need to bring before you and confess? And then let's go over the day today. What's going on in the day? Are there things I need to pay attention to your guidance in any way? Are there things, if I've got a meeting, God, what do you want me to say? But we need to create spaces in our lives for listening and paying attention to what it is that God is saying to us. You need to step off of the shore and into the current and let it carry you. We need to say, Spirit of God, I am choosing to step into this current. I desire for you to take me where you are going. It's a life of ongoing submission which begins to reshape our desires, our intention, and our thinking away from other currents. And this is where Paul goes to next, to a cross-competing current that is going to take you somewhere. Let's keep reading in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Paul says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, that current takes you somewhere. The results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild party, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's quite a list. And there are lists like it in other parts of the New Testament. Remember, Paul has said just before this in verse 15 that the Galatians are starting to bite and devour each other. They're starting to really get into this place of dissension with each other where they are not walking in unity in any way. And so he wants to pull back the curtain a little bit and let them see what kinds of behaviors and thinking lead to division and selfish actions. And so that's why a lot of these uh, things that Paul lists here are very relational in nature. And sometimes when you come to a list like this in the New Testament, you can think, oh, good night, another list of a bunch of sins. You know, the Bible is just so fuddy-duddy. Like, God is such a prude. It's like God doesn't want anybody to have any fun. What's wrong with getting drunk every now and then? What's the problem with a little bit of sexual adventure? I mean, some things that the Bible calls sinful are fun. 
So we have to pause and ask the question, why is Paul giving us these kinds of lists? And when we step back from it for a minute, we see that the problem with sin is not that you and I are breaking some kind of arbitrary rule that somehow exists in the heavenly realms. The problem with sin is always that it harms relationships. That things on this list are characteristics of a community that is marked by factious infighting and divisiveness. These are selfish things. People who are selfish do these things. They use other people for sex outside of the context of a loving marital union between a husband and a wife. They pursue sexual gratification by objectifying other people for their own pleasure. They practice sorcery and witchcraft to try and seek a spiritual power outside of God so that they can control other people. They are ambitious, not in a healthy way, but in a selfish way, ambitious for personal gain at the expense of others. They're always fighting to get their way. They're not content with their own lives, so they rip into other people with their words to try and tear them down. They lack self-confidence and self-control, so they throw themselves into the control of other things like drugs or alcohol or work or volunteerism or ministry or parenting in order to numb and escape reality. See, there are many of these kinds of lists in the New Testament, and to our ears, they sound like an arbitrary, harsh list of thou shalt nots. And the text ends with a strong warning that helps us understand why these things are destructive. It says, anyone living this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what we need to understand is that this isn't random prejudice or hate speech against these kinds of activities or people. The reason that these things are concerning to Paul about the Galatians and concerning to God is when they take root in our lives individually, when they take root in a social or corporate setting like a church, or in a nation or a people, they categorically are opposed to God's purposes. See, God's purpose is to restore all things and get the world right. And God's perfect world, when God's perfect world has been introduced, when God's kingdom comes fully in every way one day on earth as it is in heaven, in God's perfect world, these things will not be present. And because these things actually don't stand to aid in God's ultimate purpose of bringing healing and shalom and life, it's like these things pollute the water and humanity cannot flourish when the water that we swim in or the current that we are caught up in is just so filled with these kinds of things. And the language of 521 says anyone living that sort of life, the ones who practice these things. In other words, 
This is not just an action list, like, oops, I slipped into that once in a while. The ones who continually orient their lives towards these things are choosing not to be a part of God making all things new. They're choosing to be swept up in a current, all right, but it is not the current of a loving and eternally gracious God that created the world and all things in it and God's desire for people to come and experience that place where God's rule and God's reign is perfectly expressed and lived out. See, when the kingdom of God is at hand, when the kingdom and the rule of the king is fully known and lived out, when it comes into your life and begins to sweep you up into it, these kinds of things actually begin to get flushed out of your life. They begin to lose their appeal. They begin to be shown up for what they really are, hollow and shallow substitutes for genuine life and life abundant because there is another current and another way to live, another current to be caught up in. And this is where Paul turns next. It's another list. It's another list of things that make for health and vitality and unity in human relationships. It's not designed to be exhaustive. It's designed to be illustrative. And it is the outcome of those who allow themselves to be caught up in the current and work of the Spirit. Listen to the way that Paul says this in Galatians 2, sorry, 5.22. But the Holy Spirit produces a kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against these things. And sometimes when we look at the fruit of the Spirit in isolation, we did a series on it in 2016. You can go back and listen to that online if you want. But when we look at it, sometimes we think, oh, those things are just the product of a sunny disposition. Maybe optimists have those things. People that just look at the glass half full all of the time. But one of the things about those characteristics is that they cannot be easily faked or counterfeited in any way. They require the ongoing work of the Spirit. I can pretend to have self-control for a little while, but after... I get worn down a bit, or I'm tired, or I'm grouchy, or I'm hungry, or something else comes in, the circumstances get more stressful, my level of ability to control myself depletes and diminishes to the point of non-existence. But Paul says when you're letting the Holy Spirit actually be the one that gifts you with the fruit of these things in your lives, it isn't about you mustering up enough self-control to take your stand against temptation. It's about the, the, the spirit producing and growing things in your life because of the spirit's ongoing work. Theologian N.T. Wright in his writings on this passage points out helpfully the lie of what he calls modern moralism that assumes that these things will just happen naturally. And he says, 
it's a lie that if you have to work at something, it really isn't authentic. We tell ourselves in the modern world that authenticity just happens. It's just sort of the most authentic when it's just raw and real and unplanned and unstructured in any way. That's authentic. And Wright calls this the fashionable cult of spontaneity. That somehow these things will just poof, appear into my life when I need them because somehow I have the Spirit of God living in me and when I become a Jesus follower. And that's not true. The truth is that Paul uses the language of fruit to help us understand it's like agriculture. If you want fruit to grow, you don't plant a seed and then poof, get fruit. It's going to take work. Like all Christian virtues, they come naturally only after you work very hard at it. This is why people who have matured in their faith over a long decades of following Jesus have these kinds of characteristics in their life and it seems effortless but they've actually put in hours upon hours of work and discipline to let the Spirit of God shape those things in their heart and in their character. And they, they're more authentic because they've worked at them in some ways. They've allowed the Spirit to deepen those places in their life. And so these are the kinds of virtues and things that we practice. That's why we use the language often of spiritual practices here at Jericho. Which is to say we need the Spirit to continue the Spirit's work and empower us. And that's the third and final thing that Paul says that the Spirit does. Is that the Spirit actually guides us by transforming us that the Spirit offers to us God's transformative guidance. Listen to the way he phrases this in Galatians 5, 24 to 26. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have nailed the passions and the desires of their sinful nature to his cross, and they have crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit then, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. The Spirit transforms and guides our lives. And Paul uses and fuses together his picture of the Trinity again, of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, what the Spirit does is actually allows us in some mysterious way to say and participate in that moment of Jesus' victory when Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. When Jesus uttered that, he was declaring victory over the principalities and powers of evil. And it's an invitation for us, Paul says, to take ourselves to the cross and remind ourselves of the fact that it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it is the mercy of God evidenced in the self-giving love of Jesus on the cross that is because God saved us. And it's an invitation for us to actually dwell there, to, to spend time thinking about the cross, 
to spend time reflecting on the significance of Jesus' act on the cross, to come and see what self-giving love looks like. And this is why we celebrate communion, an act of remembering the cross and remembering the resurrection. And that's why it's so powerful because it's an act of identification. It's an act of solidarity where we say again, yes, I choose to believe in a fresh way and participate in that moment, in that sacrifice that Christ gave his life for me, the redemption of humanity. I'm choosing to remember and identify with that, that that was for me. But it also, Paul says, is not just a personal declaration. He says, in doing this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that act of proclamation means that communion doesn't just have to be a somber time of reflection. It can also be a time of celebration a time of thanksgiving, a time of praise, which strengthens us for discipleship and for service. It can be a time of witness where we say, Jesus, I thank you that because of your work and because of the gift and indwelling presence of power of your spirit, I am not who I used to be. I am being transformed in to a new creation. I have been transformed and I am being transformed. Thank you. And so the worship team is gonna come and we're gonna move into a time of responding to God in communion and in song worship. And what I wanna ask you to consider is those three types of guidance that God, by God's Holy Spirit gives to us and what kind of guidance is it that you need today? And each of these will be expressed just by a very simple, short, two-word prayer. Maybe for you, today, you need God's protective guidance. You're in a place where, where you feel vulnerable and you feel weak, you feel exposed, you feel like you don't have strength to resist temptation. And so maybe today you need to say to God, please help. I need your empowering work in my life to resist and stand against the evil one. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling tempted, you're feeling lost. Maybe that's your prayer today to say, God, I, I need your help. Would you protect and, and give me your guidance? Maybe for you, you need active guidance. You need, you've got decisions that you're making in your life. This week, maybe they feel big to you. They feel overwhelming. Maybe it's moment by moment guidance. You feel like, I'm, I'm just not sure what way to go. And maybe for you, you need to say, God, I'm listening. I want to pay attention to your guidance in my life. Would you speak to me today about that. And maybe you want help listening. And that's why we have our prayer team available at the back. And they're going to move there now. And our communion servers are going to move to the tables now as well. And David and others will be available for you at the back for prayer. Anne-Marie is on our prayer team as well. And Joel and Sharon are serving communion at that side. Tammy and Sue are serving over at this side. Maybe for you today, your prayer is a prayer of transformative surrender. 
maybe you say, before I come to the communion table, I actually need to pay attention to some of those places in my life where I have walked away from God's good intentions and purposes. And I just need to come to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I need to receive and accept again your forgiveness in my heart and in my life. And maybe for you, you're here today or you're listening and you've never actually done that. You've never said to God, God, I admit and acknowledge that I cannot do this on my own. I've come to the end of my rope and I am saying to you, I repent. I'm coming to you and offering you everything that I have, all that I am, because I need everything that you are in my life. I surrender today. We would love to pray that prayer with you as you take that step of surrender and guidance. And sometimes, friends, it's helpful. You may notice around here at Jericho that people, we use our bodies to say what's in our hearts sometimes. So that's why you see people raising their hands in worship. It's why sometimes you'll see people kneeling or, or putting their hands out in a posture because they're just wanting to express in their hearts with their bodies, what they're saying to God in their hearts. And so if you wanna take a prayer posture today, we have lots of space at the back and at the sides for you to do that. And the team will lead us in just some reflective songs that lead us to that place of being readied for communion. And when you feel that you're in that place, we would invite you to just stand, make your way over to either side. There's a gluten-free option there for you, and you can partake back at your seat as you pray and as you engage with God and with others in this way. And so let's respond to God in worship. You're free to stand, to sit, to move the communion tables whenever you're ready.